Hello, podcast listeners. You are listening to the Rob Long, Jonah Goldberg, John Podoritz podcast brought to you by Ricochet.com. If you haven't been to Ricochet.com, we'd like to ask you right now, point your browser to Ricochet.com. That's R-I-C-O-C-H-E-T.com. It is the fastest growing, most interesting, influential conversation between and among our members and contributors on the center right on the web. And we would like you to be a member. Yes, this podcast is free, and we love that it's free. But we also need you to sign up at rickshay.com, join the conversation, and get a host of other great podcasts every week, twice a week, three times a week sometimes, and join in on the conversations on our member feed and main feed. And in general, add your voice to the growing voice of Ricochet members as we take the time. We'll see you at ricochet.com. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to the Adoritz Long Goldborg podcast. We're calling it Plog. No, not really. We're calling it Plog, but I don't like that either. Uh, my name is Rob Long. I am one of the editors and founders of Ricochet.com. If you don't know what Ricochet.com is, please go direct your browser to Ricochet.com and become a member. More about that in a moment. On the line with me, as always, is John Pedoritz from New York City. John, how are you? I am very well, Rob. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. It's overcast here in Los Angeles. Uh, it's not great. And also on the line is Jonah Goldberg, as always, from Washington, D.C. Jonah, how's it going? You know, they remade that overcast in Los Angeles to gray in L.A., which is a little more euphonious, but I'm all right. <laughs> That's, yeah. That's what we call it the marine layer. It's just the marine layer. When I first moved here uh, in the uh, late 80s, there was still a lot of smog. There's no smog here really anymore. Um, and uh, people refer to it as, as haze. It's just hazy today, they'd say. Like, uh, you know, like we were uh, out at sea or something. No, it was, it was smog. But now it's very, it's very clear because of uh, uh, cafe standards. <laughs> you have to, have to say that. Actually, because of, uh, car emission standards have made Los Angeles a lot more livable. I can, I, so I'm beginning the podcast on a, on a shockingly anti-conservative note. Speaking of anti-conservative... Uh, Jonah, did you go to CPAC yet? I was at CPAC for much of the day yesterday. How was it? Uh, well, it's, you know, CPAC is, they moved locations. It is now in um, the Gaylord Hotel. Um, are, you, are you really? Seriously? Yes. No, absolutely. And uh, we'll get to it in a second, but I was on a panel about basically letting gays come to CPAC at the Gaylord Hotel. It was a little interesting. <laughs> but, um, uh the Gaylord Hotel is like one of these like massive Inner Harbor ripoff um, uh, developments. It's called the National Harbor. And it's in like Oxen Hill, Maryland, which um, oh, it's is, lovely, lovely there. there. Yeah, no, and it's weird. It's, it's like beautiful <laughs> when you uh, when you, when you drive. For people who don't know, John is being very sarcastic. Uh, when you when you drive there, it's like three different little weird hot highway spurs. Uh, the Suitland Parkway, which is this thing you only ever hear about in like drive time traffic reports. What's it called? Um, the Suitland? Suitland Parkway. Somebody paid some. That's a some. That's named after some horrible politician, right? <laughs> Probably. Um, but anyway, it's like it's a pretty down and out part of Maryland. But then you get to the National Harbor, and it's almost like you're in one of these post apocalyptic movies where all of a sudden 
you go to like the city that Logan's Run is filmed in, or I mean, because it's like out of out of the ashes is this fortress of solitude kind of like open air mall and giant hotel, and um, that's where CPAC is. And I will not be surprised if someone, and I hope it doesn't happen, but if someone doesn't die or get horribly hurt in a car accident coming home from CPAC because it is so much further away than where it normally is sort of in the heart of Northwest Washington. Um, I drove, it took me a half hour to get there from DC. Um, and you're going to have all these people loaded up on free booze, um, wait, trying wait. to get home. What do you mean free? Bo- it's free. Well, at night there are all these parties, you know, oh. and, um, and you got all these interns and college kids and, and right. bloggers who have finally gotten out of their, their cages and they want to let loose. <laughs> and, um, and so the whole place, it's weird. It, it, it looks a lot like Vegas. It's, a, it's got a real Caesar's Palace kind of feel, except without, like, the gambling and fun, um, right. which is kind of criminal. Uh, anyway, you know, see, back, the mood there was, the mood, you know, the, the press, a couple reporters said to me, you know, that they were expecting it to be much more dour. And I don't think they really understand that CPAC has always been something of an industry convention. And people, you know, dentists when they go to their conventions are happy because they're just they yeah, see they all their with. old friends they have a good right. time you know the hookers give them a rate it's just you know it's a good time <laughs> and um um and so i you know it wasn't all that down but i did just to wrap this up i did a panel that i did not originally want to do i originally declined i declined several panels at cpac not because i have anything against cpac just because i had other things going on but i wrote this column a couple of weeks ago on why CPAC was making a mistake not letting Chris Christie or GoProud be part of yeah, CPAC. Right, right. And um, I just think it betrays a certain lack of confidence on the right. It looks like, you know, conservatives are afraid. You know, if you're, if you're afraid to let gay dudes hand out flyers, um, you got real yeah. problems. Yeah. And, um, and if you're afraid to let, or even if you're willing to look afraid of letting the single most popular Republican governor in the country talk for five minutes at your conference, you got problems. And so I wrote this column, and for a week, I just kept getting nailed with all of this sort of, you're a squish, you're a rhino, you're like, you know, you're no better than Rob Long. And, <laughs> and it, started, it started to hurt. And it will not hurt, but it started to really get under my skin and bother me because it was so stupid. Um, and all this stuff about how I'm, I'm just writing this so I can get to all the right cocktail parties and, and blah, 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 blah. You're not a real conservative. And then the cocktail see, party obsession is constant. But it ahead. is, and... And so CEI did this panel, was putting together this panel to sort of quasi-protest the blacklisting of GoProud. And it had this absolutely terrible title, like uh, Letting Tolerance Out of the Closet Towards a Rainbow Coalition on the Right. And I I would have imagined it would be something more, you know, a double on one of those things like that character on Arrested Development, you know. Um, <laughs> that, that sounds that that conservatives make sounds fine to conservatives, but actually sounds kind of weird, you know, like uh, um, um, being in bed with all kinds of people or something. That's like right. That, you know? Politics right. makes strange bedfellows. Why we need exactly. gay marriage? Like a, <laughs> yeah, right. Taking a hard line. No, um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, I declined, and I told I told the guys at CEI who were putting on the panel. I said, look, you know, this is exactly the wrong type of title to put on this kind of thing because. It doesn't persuade the people you need to persuade. And, and let's face it, I mean, it's a title that is, you know, all that rainbow stuff. It's, 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 it's too flouncy for most of the gay conservatives I know. And, right. and so I was, I was right. like, I don't need to do this. And then 
CPAC invited Donald Trump and gave him the second biggest speaking slot after like Sarah Palin. Right. And that just pissed me off so much. The idea that somehow hard, you know, straight line gay dudes um, who are conservative, who are conservative on everything, but except, you know, the, the orthodoxy on gay marriage, um, but somehow they can't even be in the exhibitors hall handing out flyers, but you're going to let this no talent ass clown um, Donald Trump be one of the main speakers. Um, you know, no purity test that keeps out Chris Christie and, and go proud can then let in Donald Trump. No, of course, uh, completely ludicrous. Completely. And then, so that, that, that pissed me off so much. I was like, I'm going to do this damn panel. And so I went. <laughs> wow. That was your, I'm going to get them back. I'm going to do their panel. <laughs> Hey, it was packed. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen so many reporters from Mother Jones in one place. <laughs> That's right. So, John uh, Panoritz, do you ever go to go? Is it ever interesting to you? I mean, I, I have to confess, I'll just be free. I'll just be sort of, I'll, I'll kick it off. And I've been reading about this thing and people have been saying for me to go. And I just, these things, I, I really only go to them if I have to. And I have to for National Review. And I, I like to for National Review. But mostly because I can see all my own. It's the only real time I get to hang out with people from National Review that I, I never see it ordinarily. Um, but I don't think I would ever in a million years go to GoPac. I just not I, not for I, any real reason. Just you mean CPAC, 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 CPAC. Yeah, I yeah. find. I mean, I find such events very um, uh, painful and awkward. I mean, this is all depends on what type of person you are, um, because uh, when it when it comes down to it, you know, conventions are money-making propositions. They go on and they function not because there's a delusion on the right that this is some kind of a, you know, this exists as a clarion call uh, grouping of like-minded people who are going to direct the conservative movement. And in fact, um, it is uh, something that raises money for the American Conservative Union um, and uh, and therefore... Uh, you know, it exists. They make these decisions, I think, largely on the basis of uh, what is good and bad for them as a matter of profit. So they thought it would be worse for them to have go to have go proud the the, the gay group there, um, in part because others might boycott, um, or they didn't want Christie right. there because it might create a certain type of controversy that would lead some lunatics to pull out or bow out. Um, and I find all of that, this, this intersection of um, the commercial and the political, particularly extraordinarily distasteful. It's a major problem, not just in the case of these sorts of um, you know, ideological groups and movements, which really, really, really shouldn't be driven by you know, how many T-shirts can be sold and right. how many booths can be sold – um, but you know we, we have this um, we have this uh, ongoing issue in politics with uh, the control of the consultants who steer business to their own companies to make commercials and to buy media time and to do uh, digital outreach um, and the creation of this kind of um, rent seeking uh, off of politics and now that people are in presidential campaigns, raising a billion dollars to run for president, the kind of rent-seeking, the kind of um, opportunistic profit-making that can come from the act of simply trying to get somebody elected, 
this is a very big business now. Right. I mean, you I think mean, about it. Between the Obama campaign and the um, and the uh, the Romney campaign, it took you minute to associated... took you minute to remember his name. What? Yeah, I couldn't <laughs> it remember. Took you minute to remember his name. The guy with the hair. Associ- and the, the associated guy, yeah, um, what's his name? The associated super PACs. <laughs> $2.7 billion were raised and spent in a single year. That's a well, lot wait, wh- why? of money. I mean, $2.7 billion. Yeah, but, but John, why shouldn't – I mean, wh- what's the reason why people shouldn't get rich this way? Because this is the ultimate – they can or they can't. I mean, first of all – there is, of course, the ultimate thing, which is that one one should not one should not wish on a loser that that he is rewarded <laughs> rewarded with extreme wealth for having failed to you know for having failed to deliver. People can get rich any way they want to. I'm saying that 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 this creates a distorted field in which the people who are tasked with the job of trying to get people elected to advance ideas. Um, have a much larger profit motive than they have an idea-driven motive. Yeah, I mean, I think that John's right in the sense that the problem—the problem isn't that they're making a lot of money; it's that they're making mo- their incentives to make money are pointed in a way of just sort of telling the base what they want to hear, rather than actually winning elections. If someone got rich continually winning right. elections for Republicans, I would say, give them a bigger bonus. Okay, but, so you're but you're making a distinction between people who, between that army of campaign consultants and who are rent seekers, as John says, who like uh, who, who form little companies to sell to buy the media that they're they're directing their candidate to buy, and are basically skimming of the two two point whatever six billion they're going to skim their ten percent um, or fifteen percent, and the people like um, not specifically CPAC, but we'll just say because we're talking about CPAC, the people like American Conservative Union who have a, a, a giant mailing list and you know, maintain it and make a lot of money depend, you know, and don't necessarily ever move the needle. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I mean, here's, here's my take on the problems of CPAC. And again, you guys are blessed to be in the virtual company of the 2010 CPAC Journalist of the Year. So, you know, you just, <laughs> Yo, no, I, we would believe me, we were very honored. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, look, I, mean, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for CPAC, but I think, I think the thing that CPAC doesn't appreciate enough is that if they didn't exist, someone else would re- recreate it tomorrow. Because basically every industry, association, movement in the commercial field and technological field, they have conventions. And that's all CPAC is, is a convention of people in the conservative and libertarian business. And the problem is is that they tend to think they're more than that and that their imprimatur counts for something more than it does. And that, that therefore, if they allow Chris Christie in, they're diluting yeah. what it means to be a conservative and all of this nonsense. And, you know, all this is is really a gathering of the tribes. Is that how you say that word, imprimatur? I would go with imprimatur myself. I said I want to to make a rougher case. (laughs) Okay, well you're not. That's because you're not the uh, the CPAC journalist of the year. CPAC's one thing, but you know this happens. I know the right better than the left. The left and the left in many ways um, has localized and concentrated a lot of this in unions, so it's got a different effect, um, and obviously a parlous effect in its own way. But take the Tea Party, 
right? The Tea Party was a spontaneous manifestation of outrage at various, you know, acts of um, of, of government overreach in 2009 and 2010. The Tea Party suddenly coalesces into five or six organizations, all of which claim the mantle of being the representative of the Tea Party. And their method is to say, if you don't come to me, if you don't serve me, if you don't give me what I want, if you don't hire me, if you don't hire my people, then you are not Tea Party. But who are they? Who are these groups? What makes them Tea Party? There was no Tea Party. The Tea Party was a kind of, you know, spontaneous gathering system. It happened organically. It was not top-down led. It wasn't managed. The people who thought that it was managed and top-down and and controlled that way were liberal leftist journalists who wanted to see the hand of the Koch brothers in everything. But what happens is, and this has been happening really since the days of direct mail in the early 80s, people want to get the brand of the grassroots on them because there is profit to be made. And now, because of various things that have happened, the profit is huge. I mean, I'm talking about if if between uh, the Romney campaign and the, and the super PACs, on the right, in, again, in the space of six, seven, eight months, a billion five was raised, a billion five. You want to talk about your 10% off a billion five? That's $150 million in six months. That's hedge fund money. That's not like I made a couple million dollars because I helped the president get elected. That is retire with your nut and buy a private plane money. So my question to you guys is what are we doing? Why are we doing this? That other thing seems better. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, you're correct. Certainly about the Tea Party. The Tea Party was hijacked. There used to be two or three organizations: Tea Party this, Tea Party that, and Tea Party something else. They weren't the Tea Party. They were sort of old uh, political hacks from D.C. who decided to name something and get a letterhead and have people join up. And they all they do is work their lists. And it is true about direct mail. Um, direct mail is the most, uh, or has been. I think it's probably less so these days. The most depressing. Um, thing uh you know mechanism ever for raising money uh just the, the way they sort of um, harvest the the cash the left and the right from their their faithful um yeah, and it's I, I knew a, i knew a guy who did it for a long time and he said the, uh, what they tell you it, it, to begin with you know they send off these great appeals like you can help save what's going to happen to this country and all that stuff and then um you know i think for, 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 during the gingrich years somebody created something i don't even think gingrich knew about it um called the uh the speaker's council where for some astronomical sum they'd send you this really incredibly El Cheapo gavel. Uh, you know, had a, a little <laughs> plaque on it saying the Speaker's Council, and you can put it on your mantle. Like, I am a member of the Speaker's Council, and the gavel somehow implied that you were uh, they were going to consult you on important di- issues um, uh, for, for like a grand or something. And they would, you know, they, people would send it in, send in their money, and they made a whole lot of money. And, and then, but the, the the rule was in that in those days for for direct mail, never read what they called do not read the white mail. Never read the white mail. The white mail was with a mail that came. They called it that because it usually came in a white envelope rather than the envelope they put in. It came from somebody who just kind of was so uh, so hip to the cause or so into the cause. They would just send extra stuff in their own envelope. It usually was a handwritten note. 
And it was always <laughs> depressing. It was always, I want to thank you people and Governor Reagan for keeping fluoride out of Indianapolis or whatever it is. And uh, including, you know, my, here's my husband's wedding ring. He died three years ago. I hope you can use it. You know, all that stuff. Uh, it just, just piles of loot that they had, uh, you know, to frighten data people. However, I do have a pitch for you. Let me tell you what you think. I'm going I'm to sketch out a fantasy for you. But before I do, I need to tell you this, that this podcast is brought to you by Hillsdale College on the Constitution and American Heritage. We'll be talking about this later in the show, but go to ricochet.com slash Hillsdale and sign up today. It's as close as you can get to being a Hillsdale student without leaving your home. But before we talk about free, you can do things for free. Uh, and I think uh, free is sometimes interesting in creating a community of like-minded folks on our side. It's sometimes interesting. And as I said before, Hillsdale College is doing that right now. When President Obama and his progressive allies use words like liberty and equality, they mean things far different from what the American founders did in the Declaration of Independence. We the people need to understand what it really means to be free, and that requires a history lesson. And who will teach us? Hillsdale College. Hundreds of thousands of people took their free Constitution or American Heritage course, and now Hillsdale offers what this country needs just at the right time. At ricochet.com slash Hillsdale, you'll see Hillsdale has created a 10-week online course called American Heritage based on the course that all students at Hillsdale are required to take. That's amazing. All college students at Hillsdale are required to take a class called American Heritage. Boy, Hillsdale's good. Hillsdale's great. Now, in this 10-week 10 10 week course, you'll hear from Hillsdale's president, Larry Arn, and other members of their history faculty on topics like the American founding, the crisis of the Union, and the Civil War, America's rise to a global power, the Reagan Revolution, and so on. These cor- the course has lectures, readings, quizzes. It's as close as you can get to being a Hillsdale student without ever leaving your home. And best of all, the online course is free. And after you sign up, you can take it at your leisure. Sign up now at ricochet.com slash Hillsdale. Take the free American Heritage course to understand how we can recover the Republic and our rich American heritage. For a limited time, you can sign up at ricochet.com slash Hillsdale for this free, amazing class. Thank you, Hillsdale, for sponsoring this great uh, podcast. Back to the show. I'm here. I'm sorry. I just had to do, I had to get through all that. They are incredible. What's amazing is that Hillsdale is doing for free what a lot of conservative, you know, we were just talking about like how, how rapacious you can be and how rich you can get in this business. Hillsdale's managing to do something for free. So here's my pitch to you. Why couldn't you create a nonprofit um, conservative convention? And, you know, you, you, put you could, Jonah. Uh, National Review had one um, two months ago. Yeah. Uh, run by the National Review Institute, which is not the nonprofit arm of, 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 of National Review. And there were what? There were 800 people. Yeah, not only was uh, it was very intellectually made a lot of. It was very powerful, very strong. Um, it was yeah, very was interesting. It was yeah. very honest. And not um, only was it nonprofit, it was huge loss. Well, there you go. That which is the <laughs> definition of nonprofit. Yeah. Where, where did the loss come from? Oh, just putting the whole thing together cost me. Yeah. You know, we, we, did, we didn't ticket. do it to make a buck. I mean, again, it's the National Review Institute, not National Review, but. Uh, you know, they didn't do it to make make money. They did it because we thought it was important for the cause. But how big could you get? I mean, who? What would what would be the Noah's Ark that you would need? I mean, if you really had it out, you really want to put everybody in one tent. Well, if you could sketch the, out the perfect uh, the perfect convention like this, what would it be like? 
I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll pitch you mine. Okay, hit me. Somehow the Koch brothers pay for it all because we need somebody to pay for it all. Um, and we bring everybody to Detroit. <laughs> I like it. Do it yeah, like an a- urban blight tour? Yeah, like this is – we are going to – the capital of failed liberalism, right? This is where liberalism came to die. This is where all the, all the, the, the crackpot ideas were tried. This is one of America's – used to be one of America's great cities. is now a crumbling ruin thanks to liberal democratic policies. We're going to sit right here in the you – know, some kind of grand cobwebby ball, ballroom and, and bring – and everybody can come. I mean I don't if – you, if, you, if you can afford to get to Detroit and you can afford the price of the, you know, the – whatever it is, the rental of the booth, you can come no matter how nutty you are. You could come and, um, and there's plenty of space in Detroit, so – if you want to have a panel that's a satellite panel, you can go ahead, right ahead and do it and just have, a, have it all out. Just have everybody, you know, spend, it for, spend four days, have, uh, you know, a few big panel-y things, no keynote speeches, and just go. I think part of the uh, problem with that is this gets us back. We well, shouldn't dwell too much longer on CPAC, but <laughs> right. the, it, 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 one of the reasons why CPAC has gotten itself in trouble is because it does this in Washington. Why does it do it in Washington? Because it wants to be a cattle show of all of these Republican politicians. And so it kind of plays this sort of uh, two-front game where it says it's all about conservative principles. But at the same time, it basically wants to be the equivalent of the Iowa straw poll for Republican politicians. And if you did it in Detroit, you wouldn't, get all, you wouldn't be able to get nearly as many congressmen and senators to take a cab ride over from their offices to do it. But I kind of like the idea of going to Detroit because you could then do like a Habitat for Humanity kind of thing and show how like you know the real progress is done outside of a government program and be clean up that great old Beaux-Arts you know, train station or something. That'd be cool. But you know I don't I mean I don't actually object to CPAC has existed for a long time it does what it does I don't object to I don't care whether or not it allows GoProud or it doesn't allow GoProud for, for what I can tell they decided to do that for business reasons. Go Proud has made hay out of the fact that it was not allowed in, and it goes on like that. I I don't I'm not a member of CPAC. CPAC's success, failure, calamity, or lack of calamity is of very little interest to me. It just is a thing, and it needs to be recognized for the thing that it is. It is not the conservative movement. It is not a nest right. of ideas. It is part of this ongoing um, collision between uh, the activist world, the conservative movement, the Republican Party, and and the profit-making that can go on in the interstices of all of these. And that's fine. I think what I was bringing up largely about the money is that, is that in the last 10 years, the amount of money to be made in politics has – rather like banking in the 80s, simply exploded exponentially. And there are going to be very dangerous results of this that we don't see so far. Now, in in large measure, the dangerous results include things like the ineffectuality of Karl Rove's crossroads uh, effort because, you know, he got a lot of money from a lot of different people. All those people are people who think they know how best to peddle the message that they want to peddle. And so they made 20 different appeals. Uh, A senior official of the Obama camp 
told me that the story that he was very heartened by the fact that when they were in Ohio in the in June July um, there was no one single rom anti Obama or pro Romney message coming out of the super PACs. There were twenty. Yeah, they were, they were saying they they said he was a socialist. Right. They said Obamacare was bad. They said. They didn't like, uh, you know, he, you didn't build that. There's the Keystone Pipeline. There's the, you know, nothing was focused. And what was Obama doing? Bane, 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 right. Bane. One message, one message, one message, one message. And it drove Romney's numbers into the, you know, you know into the ground and he never recovered from it. And so part of it is ineffectuality. But the other part of it is, okay, so give people what they want. This has been going on for 20, 30 years. This is one of the reasons that, that, that uh, consultants go out and try to find self-funders, right? So you find some you know, guy, he's made, a, he's made half a billion dollars, and he decides it would be fun to go into politics, and he gets some consultant to say to him, oh, you, just come and pay for it yourself, and it'll be fantastic. Why? Because then the, no one has to go out and raise money. The pool is there. The consultant gets 15 to 20% of it. So his nut is met and more than met if he gets Al Checky or various other people to pay $40 million in a completely hopeless effort, right? He makes six or seven million. He makes his nut. He does three other campaigns at the same time. And then he's off on his private plane. Now that number could go up from six or seven million to 60 or 70 million. What, <laughs> it's what hard, is it's the, hard not to be jealous. Not right. I'm, not, I'm not. I know I'm supposed to be outraged and, or, and I'm disturbed, not outraged. but it's, I'm but it's hard not to be a, jealous. <laughs> fine, be jealous. Look, Rob, Rob, you have media experience. Go make commercials. Go ahead. Seriously, go become a media consultant. That's oh, so hard. It's open. It's an open field. <laughs> By the way, this is another interesting aspect of what happened with the Obama campaign in 12 and what happened with Romney. The Obama campaign went out and found um, professionals in the world of digital strategy, yeah, right? That's true. They found 50 or 60 people. They hired them. They were not in politics. They hired them. Their Obviously, kids, they mostly. agreed and were congruent. They hired them. They brought them in, and they allowed them to create these systems that had not been used in yeah. politics before. The Republican world is very closed, and here's how the Republican campaign world works. You go to work for a campaign. You're 18, 19 years old. You start driving around. You do various other things. Eventually, you're assigned by a campaign manager to the media department, the oppo department, the, you know, the grassroots department, something like that, and you get your experience. It's not that you come to campaigning with any experience. The experience comes from deciding that you're interested in politics. So the people who make commercials in you know, in, in Republican politics are not actually filmmakers. They are political guys. It used to be the case, learned, though. What? It didn't used to be. I mean, I guess they were never filmmakers, but it didn't used to be the case. I mean, those, those uh, Phil Dusenberry for, for Reagan. Oh, was, uh, Roger That's Ailes. one guy. Yeah, Roger Ailes, yeah. Guy, well, well we, we, it's a precedent, I mean. Arthur Finkelstein, who was the most successful sure. of the 80s and 90s, had a bunch of guys and they all worked. No, Roger Ailes was a Roger yeah. Ailes was you know worked for Mike Douglas, but I'm he was, just the, he was the, a producer of the Mike Douglas show. Yes, yeah. he was, and Phil Dusenberry was. But the people who the people who followed them when they went back right. into private business 
are people who are campaign workers. <laughs> it's not- hard not to be nostalgic about it. I remember Arthur Finkelstein. He lived in uh, uh, Beverly, Massachusetts. Lived in Massachusetts, and um, and he, and he would do did a bunch of did a bunch of statewides around the around the country, but also a bunch of congressional races. And he had one favorite, um, one favorite uh, tagline he used, which of course you know if you the, the country back then was so fragmented in TV markets that you would never see if you lived in one area, you would never see him used to you know two years later in some other area, and it was always. Uh, you know, whoever the whoever the Democratic opponent was, you know, so and so is too liberal for Massachusetts or too liberal for Central <laughs> Indiana. What, and the other one was like, what do we really know about about uh, John Smith? And it was always the same. And they were yeah. pretty effective ads. I actually miss those days of those of the great the sort of the great grainy black and white photo attack ads and the uh, and the, what do we really know about Congressman Jones? You know that stuff. I think, I mean. I don't know. I'm I'm nostalgic for that, but I, I do understand. There is a problem uh, in 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 with everything. Me- media has changed. Reaching people has changed. All that stuff has changed. I mean, you wrote. I mean, just to just to change the subject, uh, John. You wrote, and I and I do remember some of these days a little bit about you know about how opulent it was in the old days of Time Magazine. I mean, yeah. People who ran and worked at Time Magazine, they just lived like little kings. It's unbelievable, the, 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 the perks and the, and the cosseting and all that stuff. And you had, you had a great story you told about turning in an expense account, expense report. Yeah, well, I was 21 years old. I was a researcher at Time Magazine, and I was doing a cover story for Time. I was researching a cover story on the KGB. So I went out and I bought three books on the KGB at, at the Strand Bookstore and I put them on my credit card and then I took the credit card receipt and the receipt and I attached them to an expense form for $32.97 and I turned it in <laughs> to my supervisor, the head of research. Um, and about four hours later, I, I'd only been there like three weeks, I get a call to come to her office and I come to her office and she says, shut the door and I shut the door and she <laughs> says to me, Never turn in an expense report that is smaller than $300 a month because you're going to make everybody else look bad. You and I did not have this conversation, (laughs) but I expect you in future to turn in expense reports totaling $300 a month or more. Is that understood? And I said, (laughs) yes. (laughs) <laughs> and, 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 uh, and and I faithfully uh, obeyed the diktat of my yeah. of my boss. I can remember my first. My, I think my first couple of weeks uh, writing in Cheers. I was a staff writer. I was I think it was twenty four or something. And uh, you know we were all ordering lunch. So I was ordering lunch, and uh, uh, the 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 the, uh, you know, the guy the menu came from the restaurant we were ordering from, and uh, I was told very clearly, yeah, order an app and a main. Order, order, order! Do not hold back. <laughs> that was not so much because uh, anybody, the, the writers, really enjoyed, to, just wanted to spend the studio's money, but because that was just what you, you had to do. You had to make sure that we we, we never, if you don't spend it, they're going to take it away from the budget next year. So you have to continually, continually spend. Which I thought was I and I have obeyed that diktat uh, ever since uh, nineteen January of nineteen ninety. So there. Yeah, that's the way it is. With, that's that's the way it is with us, right? At, at NR, right, Jonah? Totally. It's whenever you take me out to dinner in LA. When I come out there, I always get an appetizer. 
<laughs> you always go to the app. Uh, there, we once I once heard a great story about that. Uh, um, um, a friend of mine was working in advertising uh, in nine in the eighties uh, or nineties, and it was one of these uh, boutique agencies that was you know billing a, you know zillions of dollars and uh, was private at that point not yet bought by Sachi or Omnicom or one of those places, and uh, it was. Um, it was it's been started by a woman, Mary Mary Wells, and she was one of the great advertising geniuses. Some people say that the character of Peggy on Mad Men is based on her. If you remember the character of Peggy on Mad Men, oh. um, and but no one really ever saw her because she lived in a giant chateau in in France, and she never ever came to New York and never came to the office. So one day in a crowded elevator, as they're going up. Um, uh, you know, you get in the get in the lobby, and you go up to the 19th floor, and so people are getting on, getting off, getting on, getting off. By the time you get to the 19th floor, it's pretty empty. The, the elevator's pretty empty, and he gets on with a friend of his who was an art director who just come back from a shoot in L.A. And they're walking, they're they're going up. The art director's turning to him in this crowd. I was like, man, uh, that trip to L.A. was fantastic. You know, I just I I expensed everything. I expensed everything. I'm, I'm going to make about three grand on this trip just on <laughs> fake expenses alone. By the time they get to the 19th floor, there's only about six people on the elevator, including one very rich-looking old lady in a giant mink coat who's staring at him angrily. And it turns out that was Mary Wells, who chose that day to come to visit her company uh. <laughs> in the elevator. And he hear this young art director talk about how he padded his best report. But, Fantastic. Uh, I have a true story. Back from the days where I believe John was still at the Standard or had only recently left, where... And I don't want to get anyone in any trouble, and there's a new regime at the Standard. There's a new owner at the Standard. It's not the way they do things anymore. But there was a time where there were a couple people in the sales department at the Standard who took long lunches, by which I mean they left for lunch at noon and never came back. And um, I was at a party, and I was giving this guy a hard time about, you know, like, you know, aren't they going to sort of wonder about, you know, you doing this? And he, this guy was pretty drunk, and he pulls me aside, and he says, Jonah? Did you see Titanic? I was like, yeah. He says, that made $600 million. That's the Weekly Standard. We're a rounding error in Uncle Rupert's, you know, <laughs> accounting. And, you know, I remember telling my dad that story. And my dad was like, yeah, but, you know, when Rupert's father's newspaper, um, the second it went into the red, Rupert closed his dad's newspaper, which was like the founding newspaper of the entire empire. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. I, one of these days, Rupert might look at this guy's expense reports and be like, what the hell? Wait a minute. <laughs> um, the, uh, another great expense uh, report story. I have two great ones. Um, uh, one was uh, for the last episode of Cheers. And you can see this is on the show. Um, Sam Malone pull, opens a bar. He's got, he's got a box of Cuban cigars he's been saving. And he opens up the cigars. And the guys all smoke cigars. And so um, at that point, I did have a friend who lived in Hong Kong and would send me Cuban cigars. He'd FedEx them. And he, ironically, at that time, he was working at Time Inc. Asia. And they had some fantastic FedEx uh, uh, boondoggle. And so they got everything faster, so everything kind of zipped through customs in, in, in Alaska much faster than anything else. And so he could send me boxes of Cuban cigars, which I got regularly. And uh, one of these guys came up to me and said one, – uh, one of uh, the, the creators of the show said, hey, listen, uh, can you get us some – we need some, some Cuban cigars. I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, well, you know what? We're going to do it for – we're going to – at the at, when we wrap, we're going to all smoke cigars. So um, we're going to need about 100 boxes. <laughs> so I had this guy send me 
uh, boxes of Co- Cohiba Escondido. Is the pro- at that point probably still the most expensive cigar you can smoke. And he sent me, you know, uh, ten a week, um, and we had uh, hundred boxes by the end, and 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 put it on my American Express card. Uh, it was an astronomical expense. It was huge. Uh, but I was still at the studio, and so we shot the show in late April, maybe I think late April. It 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 aired late middle of May. Spill at the end of May, uh, and I went back to my office at the beginning of June because I had a production deal there. We stapled it to a expense form, and I sent it along, and it was a gigantic bill. And um, I got a call from the head of studio finance saying, "Well, we're not paying this." What are you talking about? I did this as a prop. I mean, I, I this is a prop that I this is a lot of money. I couldn't possibly pay it myself. He said, "No, no, we're not going to pay this." What, how do we know it was a prop? And so I actually said, I said to my assistant, "I want you to send him a tape of the last episode of Cheers, queued up to that moment." And um, that's how you know it was an expense because you can see the character Sam Malone and Ted Danson open that box up. Now, I, he did, it was not any of his business why we needed 100 such boxes or however many we got. But, <laughs> but finally, they agreed to pay. But, you know, uh, Mrs. Johnson from American Express was calling me uh, for a week before I got the check from Paramount to pay. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> and the other one, the other great opulent moment, which I think still kind of exists sometimes, you, every now and then, but we very different, was in the late 90s, middle 90s, when the TV business was still incredibly strong. This is before uh, the decline and collapse of the business, and ironically, when everything on TV got better. Uh, I shot a pilot. Um, we thought it had gone really, really well. We loved it. We knew this, the network hated it for whatever reason. They didn't like it. Uh, and so I was furious, and I thought we had been ill-treated, so I didn't even stick around to wait to see what would happen to this pilot uh, once we turned it in. Uh, traditionally, you sort of stick around town, and you kind of like work the rumor mill and try to find out whether you're going to get on the air or not. And I decided, uh, how will that? And I sort of uh, got on a plane and went to Paris, and I'm sitting in Paris, um, kind of wandering around, eating and drinking and forgetting it. And my, and my at that point, gigantic brick cell phone rings, and it's the head of the studio saying, Have you, haven't you heard the news? Um, your pilot tested really, really well. People love it. Uh, the network has changed their mind. They really want to put it on the air. It's a late addition to the schedule. They are announcing their schedule tomorrow in New York City. You have to be there. And I said, well, I can't get there. I'm not going to be there. Um, I'm mad at them still. You know, jump in the lake. And he said, no, 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 you have to be there. You must be there. The network does want to see you in the audience when he announces this thing. You must be there. You have to come to the party. You have to make nice. So I said, well, I don't know how I'm going to get there. He said, well, whatever, whatever it takes, you just have to get there. So that was the, I think, or 99. I decided, well, what the hell with you then? I'm going to take the Concorde. So I flew the Concorde last year from Paris to New York, from to New York and just set the bill right. No question about it. The studio just paid. That was the old days now. Um, order from Quiznos. So that was a very long, two long stories. Uh, of expenses, just um, thought I'd share well, this. Well, well you the, know, uh, then of course in the Hollywood, the great story was the famous budget line in the Blues Brothers budget for cocaine. <laughs> yeah, well, right for the night shoots for cocaine, like three million dollars. It was called something else, but it was a, a specific budget line to after, keep Belushi going at uh, at two o'clock in the morning. Um, I mean, you know, opulence. Um, 
I just think actually that what we're seeing now, not to sort of get, bring this back to the to the quote, you know, politically quotidian, but you know, um, the, the classic political campaign is run out of a dumpy office, you know, rented office that can be disassembled in five minutes with rented desks and you know, junky this and junky that and la- lousy stuff that you know doesn't doesn't last. Mm-hmm. But you know, if and and the idea is that it doesn't matter what the surroundings are. All that matters is getting, you know, is, is getting whatever there is out onto the streets, you know, lawn right. signs, meetings, commercials, whatever it is that needs to go out to make an impression to make this happen, right? Hey, Joe, but Joe, but Joe, if there's a billion dollars flowing through again in six months, you know the amount of wastage the amount of uh, the amount of um the incentive to do everything but um produce is very is very high yeah and politics you know i don't know how can, candidates are the ones who are going to suffer from this if they don't get a hold of it look romney was supposedly this great brilliant businessman who could control everything and his campaign was run obviously with you know degrees of massive incompetence and with an, a, a, fail, a failure to understand a changed business environment and the need for new technologies and new techniques and the use of a use of uh, people who didn't understand how to do that and you know it raises interesting questions about you know if he can't manage it who can manage it um, I don't know I mean we'll see yeah I would, I, I mean. Mitt Romney, the guys from National Review, I didn't go because, um, I, I, frankly, I didn't want to. Um, I thought it would be too depressing, and I don't like – this is one of the problems I have as a, as a, as a pundit is I don't, I don't really like meeting the politicians too often because um, it's like getting attachments to lab animals. It's just a bad idea. <laughs> um, if, 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 if they're nice to you, you, you feel like you want to protect them right. and defend them, and – Particularly the way I write, you want to be, you want to feel like um, you're willing to kill your children, kind of. And um, when they when they schmooze you and they make nice on you, um, all of a sudden you start pulling your punches because you can imagine an actual person reading what you write. And I'm so critical of the Romney campaign. The idea of meeting with him and feeling even more sorry for this entirely honorable, decent man who screwed the pooch. I just didn't want to do it. And, <laughs> yeah, right. um, so I just didn't go. I sat downstairs and drank a cup of coffee while the rest of the team was upstairs talking to Romney. And, um, um, but I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I think, I, again, I still think part of the problem with Romney is that despite him being a good manager and all that kind of stuff and, and being good in a room, he's a good kind of manager for a specific type of management and he's good in a specific kind of room. And it doesn't translate well to the realm of politics, which is something he could never really understood, understand. And he got spun up by his managers who sold him a bill of goods about how things are done. And they thought that like metrics and numbers were going to solve all the problems. I was going to say about you know all you guys, which I hadn't realized how felonious both of you were. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, we were. Um, especially you, Rob. But you know, it's funny. You know, this is a very real problem. Um, about how you get corruption out of third world countries, right? Mm-hmm. If you are a sec- or even second world countries, if you are the one guy at the Bangalore DMV who won't take a bribe, um, you are breaking the food bowl 
of every other bureaucrat in the building, right? And it's one thing to say to, you know, John, the son of world-famous intellectuals who, you know, grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, or Rob Long, movie and TV mogul, to say, you got to go along with the, the expense report. It's another thing where, like, if you cut out the bribes for the bureaucrats in, in these third-world countries, they don't get flush toilets. They don't feed right. their kids. Right. Right. And you can see how, how it, you know, when, when, corrupt, when corruption ceases to be corruption, and it's just simply the way things are done on a systemic level throughout a society, you can see why it's so hard to get rid of it. Well, people always say, like, they do these, these uh, uh, surveys, you know, Economist magazine surveys, and I guess there's a UN, horrible UN, I don't know why I specify horrible UN, that's sort of redundant, but a horrible UN committee or commission to study c- corruption. And it always does come to that. Like, well, it's really hard to stamp out because it is the way things are done, and there's a lot of pressure to do it, even if you don't want to do it. Um, but, the, 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 but what, what, what? It, I think you're right. At that point, corruption ceases to become kind of an actual furtive thing you're doing that you don't want anybody else to know about, and you meet, you know, behind a back alley, and you take a suitcase full of cash, and just becomes another way you do business. And I, there are a lot of ways that people like here do it. I mean, if you look at every little. I'm almost, I mean, there are tons of business decisions on that way. I mean, Steve Ratner, who uh, everybody sort of applauds at this point, is the part of the brain trust of the Obama administration, or was, was the auto czar for years. Uh, you know, he ran a giant, a, pri- a merchant bank, a private bank that did a whole lot of a whole lot of very very shady things to get uh, to 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 be to get the commissions for selling municipal bonds. You know, I mean, uh, if you looked at if, if the old. And this is sort of an incendiary thing, but it's true. If you looked at a picture of the large investment banks and you looked at their uh, management ranks and you looked for the diversity in those ranks, uh, mostly African-American at the time, they were always in the business of municipal finance. They were always floating the municipal bonds, a very, very good business, very lucrative business. But they, they, they had the African-Americans there in their bank because they knew that the cities – uh, and the city financial controllers of the big cities in this country were predominantly and maybe in large part African-American. So they thought, OK, we'll do that. Um, there's also stories of – I mean not just that. I mean Jesse Jackson used to do that. He used to go meet the big companies and say, you've got a problem. You've got a diversity problem. We're going to start pick- the picketing by hiring me as your diversity consultant for $100,000 a month or whatever it was. Um, you know, everybody has their hand out. I mean everybody has some system um, – to make a buck off of what almost is always a giant pile of unsupervised cash that doesn't belong to any one person in particular. Right. Right. Well, one of the reasons that that works that way uh, is is the notion that you know everybody does it, so everybody else should do it, and if you don't do it, you're a sucker. You know that 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 this money is there for the purposes of greasing. <laughs> yeah, that's the skids. what it's there for. Yeah, we built that in. That's why it's there. Now, I think that there's a more. I think the the interesting thing about where politics intersects with all of this is the question of whether or not when we are whether a new thing has entered into the political realm that was supposedly going to go out of it with Watergate reforms and all of that, which is what, what might be called and what is often called in, in the nonprofit world donor service, which it used to be, okay, so w- what did people want? They, they, you, couldn't, you couldn't allow a politician to take a $5 million gift 
you know, from one person because he would want something very specific for his business or his company, right? But now, you know, a lot of the people who do this give money in politics are doing it intellectually. Like what they want is they want to push certain types of ideas, certain libertarian ideas, nothing that profits them necessarily, but because they think that it's better. They think that it's useful. They think that it's good. Um, they're trying to help the country. They're not trying to hurt it. They're trying to be elemosinary the way they would with, with, with all charitable giving. Wait, wait. Elemosinary. Anyway. You used interstitial also? Interstitial and elemosinary. That's right. And imprimatur. Those are the words. Those are the words. I got plenty more for you if you want them. No, I just like those. Okay, anyway, my, the point I'm trying to make is, so then you get this thing where it's like, well, so-and-so isn't going to push this tough social message because donor X, who has been really generous, supports gay marriage. Or, you know, thus and such guy really might give us a lot of money to, you know, for our education initiative but, you know, he supports uh, climate change legislation, so we better soft-pedal on that so we can get it from this. That is not a good way for politics to run. Um, it's actually much better in some ways if politics runs where a donor wants a specific, you know, variance on the highway, right. you know, because that doesn't have gigantic cascading effects on everybody else. So that's the and good so, corruption you're in favor of. You're in favor well, of good old-fashioned graft. I, well, look, graft, the virtue, honest, the famous thing about graft is that, you know, graft helps build railroads. You know, railroads are good. Um, <laughs> you know, graft helped build cable, cable TV systems more, more recently. You know, everybody likes cable TV. Um, social legislation that will affect the, you know, future course of the civilization you know, I I would I that, that doesn't profit anybody except their except their their consciences. You know, that's a different matter. That's something that should be decided by the by the by the entirety of the public, not the person who's granting contracts for you know for right of way. Jo- Jonah, do you like graft as much as John does? I don't. Uh, get. <laughs> I, 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 I do it. have this. I do have this long theory that we may have made a mistake about getting rid of earmarks, and that would have been better to uh, buy politicians with earmarks, um, which actually do build bridges and whatnot, rather than the way we're doing now. But um, no, I, the thing I wanted to get in there when you're still talking about Steve Ratner, um, the single best tweet of the week came from Steve Ratner. This oh week, yeah, oh where yeah. He announced that. Um, his son was going to lose his internship at the Pentagon because of the Pay, excuse me, paid internship. Paid internship. It at, wasn't that he was going to lose the internship. It's that he was going to lose the pay that came with the internship. Right. And, you know, here's, and this showed the problem, the horrible problem of, uh, of the sequester. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, multimillionaire bond hoodlums. Hard to you know. Um, it, was, it, was, it was just, and it was what was the thing I loved about it. Was the ravages of the sequester. Not so much that he he said it, but that when people started giving him a hard time, and as you can imagine on Twitter, um, it was like Indians popping up along the ridge line attacking the little missionaries. You know, they just loved it. Um, uh, it was that he was like, 
hey, look, I'm, you know, I understand your sarcasm, but I'm just trying to give real stories about how the sequesters affect <laughs> real people. Right, right. <laughs> totally unself-aware about, you know. <laughs> Completely missing the point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like I was walking. I'll tell you one quick story. In the, this is always the problem, you know, when, when, when the wealthy get totally out of touch, right? So I was walking in a private school in New York City, afraid to go somewhere um, where a friend of mine was. Had like you know some kind of conference or something, and there was a like the fourth grade had a display up and it said something like "My Hero," right? So and you and the kids had written a paragraph on who their hero was. So somebody said Rosa Parks, and somebody said their hero was their grandfather who had you know survived the Holocaust, and somebody else said this, and somebody else said that, and then there was the kid who said "My Hero is my driver." <laughs> There's an essay about his driver. <laughs> and I thought, oh, he's a great driver. He showed this to his mother. She probably said, "He's so compassionate." Yeah, yeah. Toward those who are less fortunate than he. <laughs> my hero probably, is my driver. Drivers probably, you know, depending on the family, depending on the neighborhood, depending on you know which service they hired, you know, could have been a 57 year old, you you know, chemical engineer Ukrainian. That's that, right. Uh, the, the, that the fourth grader calls Yuri. That's not even Mister, uh, you know. But his it's his hero. So yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> hero's my driver. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> that's well, you know. Listen, uh, some sometimes your heroes are close to home. What can we say? Um, <laughs> hey, fellas, any last thoughts on the new pope? I know, um, I know, uh, neither one of you has uh, a dog in the fight, as it were. But uh, any any thoughts on the new pope? Um, I like him. I like that he picked. <laughs> he's I, okay. I like, I like that he picked Francis. I hope. I hope he's a real hardliner, so everyone just is constantly saying "lighten up, Francis." Um, and uh, those guys really know how to dress. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think this is one of the great things in the global sort of media culture is that this, this pre-modern institution that doesn't change its ways gathers so much fascination. And in yeah. some ways, it's sort of like, you know how the Marines are the most uh, oversubscribed to military um, branch because they don't lower their standards um, and how Orthodox churches are doing so much better than sort of mainline Protestant churches? I think it says something about the craving that is sort of written into people that this is such a subject of fascination, not just for serious Catholics, but for everybody. I think it's great. Um, uh, I do think, you know, not just in the, you know, in the, in the, in the ritual uh, aspects and whatever his, you know, his philosophical views may be and what little I've read suggests that he's a very, you know, he's a very, um, serious and deep thinker i've only read these inter- two or three interviews with him but that show you know a range of uh, of interest not 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 a deep intellectual like ratzinger was and obviously not a not necessarily a wildly transformative figure like like voitiller was but um it, it it does need to it should be said that when it was not necessary for him to do so at a time of great ferment and trouble uh, in Argentina, uh, with uh, the rise of um, not only neo Nazis but also um, um, Iranian-sponsored terror uh, attacking 
um, you know, Jewish community centers in Buenos Aires that um, that um, Bonfilio, as he was then, even before he was a cardinal, played a very important role in standing with the Jewish community in Argentina when, you know, there was no particular reason or need for him to do so politically, socially. Um, mm-hmm. The left wasn't interested in 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 being nice to the Jews and the right wasn't never particularly interested in being nice to the Jews. And, um, and he clearly did something, um, out of a deep conviction and a sense of what was right and wrong and standing up against, you know, uh, against, um, you know, terror and, uh, and, and mm-hmm. un- unholy and ungodly behavior. And for that, I think, um, one can expect great things from him. Or as a friend of mine tweeted uh, yesterday, that the Pope is the second most fabulous Argentinian ever to greet the people from a balcony. <laughs> that is <laughs> Vita, right? <laughs> that him, is thinker, so unfair. <laughs> that is really okay. Now, why don't you make an Argentine steakhouse joke? Uh, I was I was been working on one for two you know, days. I don't have a good one. The, you know, you know. When when it came to him and the question of whether he wanted to be pope, you know, he could have had the red part that says yes, yeah. give me a slice, or he could have turned it over where it was blue and said no, but he <laughs> yes. said yes. Yes, he said that's a what's that, that's a fogo de chao. Is that what that is? There, yeah. there are many of them. Yeah, that's, that's right. Churrascaria. Churrascaria. Right, right, right. Well, uh, or or you can say that the, the runner up in the election now has to be a tango partner. My uh, my understanding is that Argentinians are sort of like Chekhov from Star Trek. They are incredibly arrogant. They think everything is an Argentinian yep. invention, right? And like, I knew a guy who lived in Argentina, and he said uh, in the nineties, he says, "You Americans, you keep talking, making fun of Al Gore for inventing the internet. Everyone knows the uh, the internet was invented in Argentina." Uh, <laughs> it'd be, be kind of cool if like all church history is now rewritten from the Argentinian perspective. I think that's, <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's right. Um, well, fellas, we're coming up on the hour. Um, it was good to talk to you. Uh, do you guys, uh, Joan, are you going to be anywhere? You want to plug any, any of your upcoming appearances? I'm going to be at, um, in Buffalo in, I can't pronounce it. I haven't said it out loud. Uh, Kansas college in Buffalo, um, on Monday night giving a speech and i'm gonna be on special report tonight and i'm taking our two cats to the vet tomorrow i will okay. report on that on the next exciting episode of glob <laughs> john well as wait, usual wait. rob i will be at um at giggles in north hartford uh connecticut <laughs> on a bill with um with kevin hart and carrot top right uh, where carrot top will will in fact break um melons over kevin hart's head um, and uh, you need to pity me because I, I, I think we're having two sleepovers at our at our house uh, tomorrow night okay. um, for a total of um, four girls and uh, ages eight through six and uh, and my and my two and a half year old son. So if I recover, I will uh, I will not only go to Buffalo to see Jonah uh, at Kinesius College, um, but uh, I too will break a. Um, We'll break a melon over Kevin Hart's head. It'd be great if uh, it'd be great if one of your kids' friends, when they get there, leans over to the other friend and says, "Remember, order an app." <laughs> yeah, order an app. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fellas, I'll talk to you next week or a week after. See you guys. See you, okay. see you soon. Take care. Bye. Keep up alive.
Join the conversation. I love you and hope you love me. Don't cry for me, Francis. 